Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women has issued its final report. A series of ads to give away crosses left behind by family members of inmates who died of overdoses have started hitting the internet. And there was backlash against a conservative MP who lashed out at a parliamentary hearing over a witness's testimony saying the witness should be ashamed of himself for linking conservative commentators to extremist attacks. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Very important report being released. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women is issuing its final report as we speak, as a matter of fact, in Ottawa. Uh, more than 200 recommendations to the federal government and calls for a violence against First Nations to be recognized, among many other things. Joining, <clears throat> excuse me, joining us to talk about this is Don Martin-Hill, Associate Professor with the Paul R. McPherson Chair in Indigenous Studies at McMaster University. Uh, Don, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hi, good morning. This is a very extensive report, very detailed report, but uh, just in, in reading some of the overview here, it's it's a rather damning report about the status quo, isn't it? Well, it's it's reflecting a truth that we live and Canadians are just finding out about. And and they realize part of the problem, and I think the report touches on that, Don. Yes, it does. That 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 we don't pay much attention to this. It becomes you know front page news when we hear of some of these incidents that have occurred over the last little while, but uh, soon forgotten, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, here at Six Nations, you know, we're. Um, a high-functioning, educated, hard-working community, and 91% of our people are not hooked up to the treatment plan or have access to clean running water. Right, there is a, a different set of realities for Indigenous people that Canadians just simply have never known. Well, and I think we saw that over the years, didn't we? I mean, the previous government, the Harper government, actually, as you recall, Don, even refused to do a study like this. Uh, suggesting that the, the the deaths, and there were way too many of them, one is one too many, uh, were not an Indigenous issue at all, but it was just a, it was murder, and that was all they wanted. They didn't seem to understand that there was a specific uh, indication here that, that this area needed to be studied. Oh, I think he understood. He just made a conscious decision to dismiss it. Well, so this government obviously has carried through on this. Right. Uh, and... and I want to get into some of the details here and get your reaction to some of these things, because uh, some of the language is pretty strong here, and I, and I think right off the top, uh, defining the level of violence against uh, Indigenous women as, quote-unquote, Canadian genocide. Uh, some may think that that's a little bit uh, over the top. Uh, I don't think so. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I, it is what it is the truth. Um, there's evidence. Um, we just need to go to... You know the earliest contact with Europeans and and what took place in the first hundred years and um, and then the uh, sterilization of Indigenous women. There was eugenics committees that set up in 1930s. You had Duncan Campbell Scott, the Minister of Indian Affairs, stand in the House of Commons in 1924 and declare he was going to continue until there's not a single Indian left in the Bali politic. You had our children abducted. They're continuing to be abducted by CAS today. We are the highest incarceration rates. We can't get loans, which is what Canadians don't realize. We don't have equity. Um, when you live on crown land, uh, you don't have equity, which is the basis of capitalism. So economic barriers. We weren't allowed to get educations. If we went to universities, we had to disenfranchise, so most of our people did not. It's not because we're not 
able to do it, which this generation, my generation, the first one proved. Um, so we've had barriers that they just didn't know existed because it was not on the front page news. What was on the front page news is poverty. Well, they created our poverty. They stopped us from participating in, in, in the growth of the country. Um, we had a different set of rules than everybody else, and we still do. So they need to understand <clears throat> their country was founded on the dispossession and oppression of indigenous people. I, I think we have a feeling right now, uh, rightly or wrongly, maybe not even uh, uh, validated, that, uh, that well, we, we do have that knowledge now. We are getting better. But when you, yeah. you, when you start to chronicle some of the stuff that you've just talked about, Don, uh, it's, it's a clear indication, obviously, that we've got a long way to go here. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll be honest. Um, it's been a struggle at McMaster University over the last 28 years just to get Indigenous studies. I mean, that was done on the backs of me as a student, uh, on our elders. We had to access the money. We had to bring uh, money to the table before they'd even consider a course. And then it's mostly non-Indigenous people benefiting. So it was Indigenous education money going into universities um, to pay our salaries. Like, what we had to do just to be included in our own homeland, the only homeland Mohawk people exist in or Cree, or, we had to carry the weight and do the change and then get dismissed as not being a great academic for doing so. So if we live in this very difficult um, shadow of teaching about colonialism, trying to create change. We work hard to create that change, and then we're often punished for doing so. So it's such a complex, um, discriminatory, it's embedded um, in, in epistemological violence, dismissing our knowledge, our healing. It, it, it needs to change, and universities and educators need to be at the forefront of that, but we need the support of our allies on changing policing, as the recommendations point to, on changing the court system, which denies us justice over and over again. Um, we need a task force to open up those cases um, that this is really all about, the missing and murdered Indigenous women, their families, uh, having the case reopened by a, a task force with Indigenous people. Uh, leading it and shaping it. So I'm hoping at least a few recommendations. And then I think it's up to education institutions and media to change the way they present our people um, in a very inhumane, dehumanized way over and over again. Uh, it, my daughter, um, <laughs> she came to me when Google, I mean, this new world we live in, and she goes, you know, Mom, when I put in uh, indigenous woman or native woman, all I see is murdered people and pictures of murdered people. I don't see any any love stories. I don't see uh, a happy and healthy native woman. And and she was really distressed about that. She goes, why can't we have a love story? Um, why is it always about rape and murder? So the discourse needs to change. And I think the the it re, the recommendations include that this in insidious way they represent our women and diminish our contributions, whether it's today in our professions or whether it's, you know, a hundred years ago in the fur trade, they just dismiss it. And um, that needs to change. And it takes all Canadians 
to step up and correct a huge injustice. And, and those stereotypes, as you mentioned, Don, are ingrained certainly in, in, in society, but they're also ingrained in the laws, and I think the report touches on this right now, uh, mm-hmm. where they say, for instance, where there's a pattern of intimate partner violence and abuse, uh, uh, such as murder, obviously, that that should be first-degree murder under Section 222 of the Criminal Code, but it's not right now. No. So, in other words, there's, there seem to be two levels of justice at play here. Yeah, I mean, overall, um, we've always had the two-tier justice. That's what Canadians need to wrap their heads around first. We live under a different set of laws than the rest of Canada. We don't want it all thrown out because some of them protect our rights. Um, But a lot that was added on, 1914, you weren't allowed to do ceremonies or dress in your regalia or you'd be arrested, and our people were. Um, So religious persecution... Uh, Women were dispossessed of their rights um, as Native women in this country. We didn't have the vote. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So what we need to do is move forward under self-determination, self-government, UNDRIP. We have the tools now. We just need Canada to step up. And I believe in my heart of hearts that most Canadians um, are, are wrapping their heads around a history they were never taught, and they're trying to do move forward in a good way. I have to believe that. And I also believe our women in the communities across the country and their families and their children, we will continue to fight and survive um, because we're resilient. And that those stories need to be told more. Which is all part of the education process, which is, is as you mentioned, woefully lacking, uh, not just among Indigenous peoples themselves, but in our in our overall education system, I mean, why aren't those stories being told? Um, well, we were not allowed to get university educations under the Indian Act, so this is my my group is the first group to enter university without having to give up our our rights, and so we're just now starting to write and research and. And um, maybe not enough for some people's liking, but we're we're busy changing and transforming the way research is done in this country. We're transforming um, the paradigm of Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing. Um, and we're trying to improve uh, the quality of life of our people. So there's not enough of us to carry that burden, but certainly I think the tide has changed with the TRC residential school is now a common term. When I was teaching it in 1992, I had students get up and walk out of my class because they were like, that's crazy. I would have knew about that. I would have heard about that. So we're delivering this injustice that we live and we research to people who generally don't want to hear it. And we do it every day in schools and universities or trying to transform the way um, uh, Canadians understand. And we've carried that burden, and it's ruined our careers. I can attest it's ruined my career. Um, to do that work instead of publish, 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 and be very Eurocentric as a, as a scholar. Um, so it, it's a difficult road, um, but I do believe we are affecting change. And I do believe in this younger population because they are far more informed than any generation I've ever taught. Um, Maybe because of social media, maybe because of uh, the ability to tell our stories um, on social media. So it is changing and you have to have and give our young people hope 
because it is dangerous to be an Indigenous woman in Canada, and that needs to change for my granddaughters. And with that lack of information and lack of knowledge about these these stories that you've talked about, it it permeates every aspect of our society, including the legal system. And I I know the report touches on that, and it's one of the areas that I do hope that uh, governments and future governments, for that matter, are going to pay attention to. I mean, because you've seen this, certainly, Don, and I've seen this in in the coverage of some of these uh, terrible incidents that have occurred. Uh, They say many of these murder investigations are marked by indifference and negative stereotypes. Uh, Of course they are, because there's there's an ignorance of actually what's going on, and and as that 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 goes right through the legal system. I know. I mean, just not just police and the investigation, but through the court system itself. Yeah, and I mean, you could go back to the Harper Inquiry. You could go back to the Royal Commission. You know, nineteen ninety six. You could. It, we've been calling for an overhaul of the justice systems. We comprise over half of the prison population for ridiculous things like not having insurance and then not paying your fine and. And, and our people are uh, in jail, and then they take our children, and the CAS has more children in their care than residential schools ever did. So just these basic human rights to be unmolested in your own country has not has not been effective for us. So I do hope that we move forward and overhaul the justice system. They need more Indigenous inclusion. They need to respect Indigenous laws, traditional law, custom law. I mean, there's other countries who do it. It's not rocket science. So we, we can do this. We just have to have the will. Um, I ask, I just ask everybody who's listening, just read the Cindy Gladue case. If you read that one case, you will understand the difference between the way we're treated as Indigenous women in this country, because you couldn't imagine that happening to a white, middle-class, uh, suburban uh, daughter. So we, we, we need to reconcile but before you can do that, you need the truth, and that's what was missing. And I think this is presenting the truth. Those families deserve justice, but we need to do some work so that they can receive justice. And that's going to take all Canadians Absolutely. Um, to step up. Uh, yeah, and you, I, I believe they will. Just about out of time here, but I mean, with what you've read and, and what you're hearing from this committee, uh, how confident are you that, that many of the things that are being discussed in this report and many of the things that are being recommended in this report are actually going to be followed through? Well, I don't think likely they believe that every 200 and some, but you have to put everything in context. And, and the way Canada works is they silo. They silo everything, and they want it to just stay in this one category. For Indigenous people, we have to provide the history, the context, and the root cause which is colonialism and genocide, and then move forward with changing housing. When you don't have housing or access to housing or running water, that puts your young families at risk, young daughters, you know, moving to the cities, becoming isolated and becoming a target. So it's, it's, it's insidious in the way in which this country has uh, created a narrative and, and laws around Indigenous w- women and, and people. So overhousing, overcrowded, not having access to clean water, as Six Nations doesn't, um, leads to these other events taking place. So um, homelessness, um, you're staying at people's houses, you're susceptible to being in a sex trafficking. So we need to, to get to the root cause, and I think that's why they put all of those in. But yes, the families cannot be lost in all of this. They are the ones, like Dr. Bev Jacobs from Six Nations, moved this whole 
uh, issue forward at the United Nations because Canada refused to deal with it. So just getting this far is a victory for Indigenous women that they carried on their back as they're going through to get their PhDs. Guess what? I'm also doing this. And that work is never recognized. Um, so people need to help us um, if, if we're to achieve a, a brighter future. And I think if they don't, this younger population, I can assure you, is not going to stand for the levels of injustice my generation Exactly. Did. Well, so it's and, and it's not just in it's not just in the court of the government right now. It's each and every one of us have a, have a part to play in this. Don, we will stay in touch. Uh, I'd love to talk to you and follow up on this in in the days ahead. But thank you so much for the time today. Okay, thank you. I do Bye-bye. appreciate it. Uh, Don Martin Hill, associate professor at uh, McMaster University on Indigenous Studies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The last week of the program. Uh, we talk with Amy McKechnie, who is uh, a sister of Ryan McKechnie. Now, Ryan is one of the, the, the tragic deaths that have occurred because of overdose at the Barton Street Jail over the last number of years, a problem that is happening in detention centers uh, right across the province of Ontario. And last week, they held a rally outside of the Barton Street Jail here in Hamilton to uh, bring awareness to, to the concern and the problem that was going on. Well, unfortunately, there were a series of ads that were offered on Kijiji uh, of the crosses that were left behind by the family members after that rally. Uh, those crosses, of course, were in uh, memory of uh, the people who have died. Uh, one of the ads says these crosses signify the many men and women of society's underbelly who are taking a dirt nap due to their unwavering addiction to self-destruction. Uh, it's not only ignorant, it's 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 outrageous. Uh, Amy McKechnie uh, joins us on The Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about uh, her reaction to this. Amy, thank you for the time. I, I wished it was under better circumstances. How are you doing today? Not too bad, Bill. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm upset, as you, I'm sure you are too. After we saw this story over the weekend. Oh yeah, completely. Tell, tell how did you find out about this? Uh, a friend of mine sent me one of the ads on Friday night, and so I had reported that one, only to find three more pop up. Uh, quite a few of them, as a matter of fact, uh, the, and then they were, were basically suggesting that they could sell these things. Some wanted to give them away. Uh, and, yeah. and, and that's that's bad enough, but I mean, some of these comments were just plain ignorant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes beyond ignorance. It's so disrespectful to the families. It it was hurtful. Like there was no need for it. Uh, it. It would be easy to simply say, well, maybe they didn't understand the gravity of the situation or why those were there in the first place. But of course, they did. Exactly. And I mean, I understand not everybody supports. You know, some people died in prison. Yes, that. But, one, it doesn't mean that they were all guilty, and two, regardless of where they died, they left behind family members who put those crosses there in their memory, and those family members are mourning them, and you're just respecting that. Well, and Call it, Calling us meth heads and, you know, um, basically degenerate family members when you don't even know us. Nor do they, do they understand the circumstances about what they were there. As, as you and I have discussed in the past, uh, some of these uh, these fatalities... Uh, that have been investigated, of course, were not people that were convicted of any crime. They were there awaiting trial, for instance, on some charges. Uh, and I, as last time I checked, we were still in this society, uh, you know, in, innocent until proven guilty. And some of these people, unfortunately, were there awaiting trial, uh, not uh, charged or convicted of anything in this particular situation. But what they did carry in with them, of course, was this addiction. Exactly. Yep. So I think the, the numbers currently are 70% who are incarcerated in detention centers are legally innocent because they have not been convicted or they're, they're there waiting bail. 
And it's a toxic environment, to be sure, to, to be placed in something toxic. like that. I mean, yeah, they're throwing in the in these walls with nothing to do. There's no programming. There's there's no counseling. There's nothing. They just sit there day and night. Uh, in overcrowded facilities, as you've discussed. I mean, the, the, oftentimes these are, are, are jail cells that are built for one individual. And I, I've heard that there's sometimes four or five people in some of these. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're sleeping on floors. And and at that point, they're sleeping with their heads near toilets. And it's it's just it's unbelievable people just think that's okay because they've been charged with something and they've been put in there so they must deserve it there's a, a concern here and i know you and i tried to, to get into this a little bit last week and i was I, i'm hoping and i think probably at least you know common sense uh, would dictate that a lot of people that heard our conversation would understand uh the predicament that many of these people are in uh whatever the the, the accusations might have been about uh, you know their their run-in with society uh, there they were, but the overriding factor about this is addiction, and I'm, I'm not so sure that people actually understand the ramifications of addiction, Amy. No, they don't. I mean, somebody who has an addiction issue is going to do whatever they can to feed that addiction. I mean, I don't know if anybody who listens has ever suffered withdrawals, but to my knowledge, it's pretty excruciating pain. Well, so, and, it, and, it, and it, you just, you're going down a, a, a deep, dark hole when you're in a situation like that. Exactly. It's no, it's, it's, to my knowledge, it's a lot like depression. There's a, there's a lot of depression that goes with the addiction issue. So, I mean, to deal with all of this all at once and, you know, their, their way of dealing with the pain is taking these drugs. That's what takes their pain away. Uh, and once you start, uh, you know, the idea of saying, well, they can just stop is, is uh, I, well, it's not steeped in reality. I mean, that's what this comes down to. And, and you yep. know, Amy, we've talked about this. I've talked to experts in the field about this. I've talked to people that were in situations like this. Uh, we've talked to counselors. We've talked to police about this, uh, especially here in the Hamilton area. We understand that uh, that we actually, in, in, in this city, are in one of the worst situations of the opioid crisis. It's, uh, it's The numbers in Hamilton here are much higher than the provincial averages. So it's invariably going to happen that people are going to get caught in situations like this. And when you're an addict and when you're hooked on something like this, you start to do things that you don't ordinarily do. Exactly. Yeah, the numbers are staggering in Hamilton. It's unbelievable the amount of addiction problems we are having here. So there they are, in, in incarcerated in situations like this. And, uh, you know, some of them may have, in fact, committed crimes. But we've heard about doctors, lawyers, professional people of all stripes, of all genders that are doing these sorts of things. Because, as you say, you have to feed your addiction. Your body is craving this. This is not just, hey, I feel like I want to uh, get another high. Uh, the body actually ha- is is demanding that you do something about this, and, and these people are reacting to it, as any other person who's who's addicted to one of these substances would act. Exactly. It's it's no different than somebody who is a smoker, coming from an ex-smoker, uh, or somebody who was an alcoholic. I mean, these things are legal, but it's the same thing. It's It's another type of addiction, and people don't understand the addiction and what it does to you and... And in your brain, I mean, people with eating disorders, that's an addiction. So how do you deal with this as a family? I mean, we talked a little bit about this, and we talked about the rally last week, but you have to live with this every day. How do you, how do you handle this? Um, I co- we, we cope as best as we can. I mean, it's something we never, ever thought would, would happen. We, it's not something you entertain the thought of, you know, losing your, your youngest brother when he's 34 years old, you know. And and 
It's it's I, we keep coming back to this one word, but it's addiction. And, and your point's well taken here. Uh, in this particular case, the addiction is with opioids, uh, fentanyl in many cases, or v- derivations of that. Uh, but it could be tobacco, it could be alcohol. I mean, there there are many, many people that are walking around not incarcerated right now who are dealing with addictions. Uh, so to be as insensitive as some of these people were that posted these comments on Kijiji either shows they have a terrible lack of understanding about this or they just don't give a damn. Exactly. And and I think it's the latter. They they just don't give a damn. They They don't understand... Um, what led people there, or whatever it may be, they don't ag- they don't agree with it. So this is their way of putting it out there, and it's disrespectful. It's not okay. Well, and we've heard some of these stories, and you know we've talked about some of the people that are impacted by this, and 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 you'd be surprised at uh, at who they are in some cases, uh, and what they do as a result of this, and how. Well, I guess maybe the best word to use here is how innocently they they come to this addiction. Uh, sometimes it's after major surgery, and you need painkillers to try to deal with the the, the aggravation that's and and the, and the healing that's going on in your body. And we know that these things are highly addictive. I mean, there are class action lawsuits in the states right now with multi millions of dollars, uh, where uh, the companies that produce these drugs legally are being sued now by a number of families, such as yours, that I would now understand that. Look at the the, the manufacturers, and matter of fact, even some of the people that, that handed out these prescriptions were well af- aware of the addictive quality of these narcotics. Yet they gave them away anyway. Yes, and Ontario, to my knowledge, wants to get in on that class action now as well. Yeah, yeah. The provincial government made uh, notice of that uh, just a couple of days ago that they wanted to jump in on that uh, because they realized the magnitude of the problem here in this province. Exactly, and with the fentanyl. A lot, to my knowledge, a lot of the other drugs that are on the street that people use now are being cut with fentanyl, and people don't know. Well, we saw this. I guess about a week ago, uh, we had a story here on CHML News about uh, two young men uh, who were found by a, a, a passerby, really. Uh, Unconscious, and uh, he did what he could. Called nine one one right off the bat. They got the in, and and were saved. Obviously, they were taken to to hospital, but they thought they were just smoking pot. Uh, yeah. That's and and it turned out that it was laced with fentanyl, and it almost killed them. Exactly, and the pot's legal now, right? So, yep. yeah, it's happening everywhere, and people don't realize that. And the impact that this can have, obviously, it, it was almost fatal for these two gentlemen. But the other aspect of this, of course, it could be an addiction. Once your body becomes used to this, and once your body starts to crave this, uh, you find yourself in situations like this. I mean, that's what addiction is all about. And uh, we, I think, need to do a better job of, of educating ourselves about the problems with addiction and how, how, how it can start. And as I mentioned, very innocently in many cases, and, uh, and where it leads is uh, not a pretty picture. Exactly. It's heartbreaking to see, to see somebody like that on the street or to think of people going like that. You, you should be asking yourself, what led their life to, to that? What, what happened to their life to get them there? And what can we do to help? Because they're human beings. They're people. Who are dealing with pain, some of it physical pain, some of it emotional pain. And uh, as, we, as humans tend to do, you look for ways to try to alleviate that suffering and that pain. And uh, sadly, in many cases, it turns out to be a narcotic like this that can be highly addictive. Sometimes, as we mentioned, it could be alcohol. It could be some other things that uh, also have addictive qualities to them. Uh, and, and therein lies the situation. And I know you've told us about Ryan's story, your brother's story. Uh, there are many more like him. I've talked to families of uh, victims in, in other communities uh, at detention centers where this is going on. 
And um, and as the tragedy, of course, of Ryan and others is is of paramount importance. But uh, not too far behind that in, in importance, of course, is is the fact that it's happening in these detention centers, uh, and the authorities, including the staff. I know you've talked to the staff about this. Are as frustrated as you and I are as we discuss this because they they don't seem to be able to handle this. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a revolving door, and it seems every every day or every other day the paramedics are being called to go and help them with overdoses there. And the government's saying, you know, we've done this, this, and this, but we're not seeing that, and it doesn't seem that these officers are getting the help that they need to help these inmates. Well, there was an inquiry, as we remember, about a year and a half or so ago, here in Hamilton, about the number of deaths that were going on at the Barton Street uh, Jail. Yeah, the super inquest. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they came out with a series of, of recommendations, as you mentioned, uh, the word we're getting from the authorities, especially from the government, is that, well, we've enacted most of those already. You don't seem to see any evidence of that, though. Well, no. I mean, the jury, so they made 62 recommendations from that inquest. Now, I just received another email from Solicitor General Sylvia Jones on Thursday stating that in Hamilton alone, they have uh, they've brought in um, a sniff dog every other week. And they've brought in an addictions counselor. But, I mean, we're not seeing these things. If you've brought in these things and you've implemented 80% of these recommendations, as you've stated, then why are all these overdoses still constantly happening? Yeah, well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, they can talk about all what they've done, and they may or may not have brought the dog in. We don't know. I talk to authorities about that and try to get some sort of confirmation on that. But the fact is, is if the long-term goal here is to try to curb the number of addictions, it doesn't seem to be working. So whatever they've done so far uh, seems to be not enough. Exactly. Yeah, there there needs to be more done. Well, and that's a message that we need to get out to. to the, the This is a provincial uh, re- responsibility, obviously. And I know that the province is simply saying, well, the feds have to get involved in this. I mean, you, you've got to be awfully frustrated, Amy, that the, these uh, levels of government tend to pass the buck one to another and, and not really get a whole lot done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so they stated it's a provincial problem. And that's why we went to the head of all of corrections, which is Sylvia Jones. And she doesn't want to seem or know what's going on, really. I mean, so she says that here in Hamilton, they've hired an addictions counselor. They have installed a partial x-ray scanner and housed all new inmate admissions in the intake assessment unit for 24 to 72 hours before being put in general pop. As well, they have scheduled canine searches biweekly and an institutional security team. This is what she says they have done since the inquest, or since April of 2018. Yet, every other day, there's new overdoses at the Barton Street Jail. Well, the stuff's getting in there somehow, and, and they yes. don't seem to have solved that, have they? No, they haven't. And she stated when we had our meeting with her on April 6th, I believe it was, she stated that she needs more than provincial help. So we went above her head. We, a, a bunch of us families went to Justin Trudeau himself, who says, well, this is provincial matter. It, it has nothing to do with me. And then he passed it off to another federal minister, Ralph Goodale, who we haven't heard from. So, I mean, who do we go to for help? You're the head of the country. Why can't you help? Well, it's more than a rhetorical question to this stage, and uh, obviously a response from Minister Goodale would be uh, apropos, I think, in this situation. Not sure exactly what their plan of action may be, but something's got to happen. Because you've got to figure, Amy, that this, I, I know we're talking about the Hamilton situation and, and the Ontario situation here, but this is not unique to this province. I'm sure it's going on right across the country. 
it's huge right across the country. It's it's everywhere. It's EMDC. It's Toronto South. It's Maplehurst. Maplehurst just had six overdoses, I think, two weeks ago, all from the same unit. Well, I'm waiting for the call to action to actually resonate at Queen's Park and, and, and Parliament Hill, for that matter, anyway. Uh, rough weekend for you because of this, but uh, you have stood strong, as you always have in this, Amy. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Amy McKechnie, of course, uh, who has been a strong advocate for uh, trying to uh, alleviate and eliminate this problem about uh, illegal narcotics, of course, getting into jails and uh, the overdose deaths and near deaths that are happening once too often. And uh, as for the lowlifes um, that have posted these things on Kijiji, that, by the way, they've since been taken down, uh, that one particular uh, posting here that says these crosses signify the many men and women of society's underbelly. Uh, in fact, the lowlifes who post stuff like this are society's underbelly. That's the reality. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a backlash continuing over a conservative MP's comments last week uh, to a, a Muslim who is appearing before the Justice Committee. Let me just set the scene for you here. Uh, the Muslim witness uh, who conservative MP Michael Cooper lashed out at during the parliamentary hearing uh, last week uh, has told Global News that uh, he b- believes that Cooper's behavior was to use his quote, un-Canadian, and he wants him booted from the Conservative caucus. Uh, Fasil Kansuri is this president. He was the, the witness. He's the president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council, and he was dressed down by Cooper Tuesday uh, during a hearing about online hate. Now, here's, here's what seemed to ruffle Cooper's feathers. Surrey said during his testimony that uh, online history of Alexander Bissonnette, who, of course, was the mosque murderer in Quebec City, uh, was sentenced to life in prison for that. The online uh, history showed that he repeatedly sought out alt-right and conservative commentators. Well, Cooper took exception to that and said, how dare he? He should be ashamed of the fact that he tried to draw a line between alt-right commentators and terrorist activity. And for that, uh, he got the dressing down. As a matter of fact, Cooper actually doubled down on this by actually quoting from the manifesto from the Christchurch murderer as well and put that into the public record. Uh, for his actions, uh, well, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, removed him from the Justice Committee, but he still has his role as a deputy uh, minister, a uh, deputy critic, rather, and he is still in the Conservative caucus. Joining us to talk about all this is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and always a welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show. Barry, how are you doing today? Hello, Bill. Good to have you on again. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as I read this and as I saw this unfolding over the last two or three days, the first thing that comes to mind is, boy, the standards certainly have changed in this country over the last little while. Yeah, uh, look, uh, this was just silly, perhaps silly all the way around, but certainly uh, an MP should uh, have a little more maturity. And I, I, more than anything, I think it was just naivety that he didn't understand the implications of, uh, of what he was doing in, uh, on a topic that was, uh, was so sensitive. Uh, I don't know if he has said other things similarly foolish in other matters. It certainly hasn't hit the national press if he had. Uh, I'm not sure this is a hanging offense yet. With I think if something like this happened again, uh, that indeed um, the uh, the party leader, uh, Scheer, would, uh, would understand that this guy is just bad news and has to be torpedoed. Uh, he did make the gesture. He kicked him off the committee. And hopefully he's been chastened, and I gather he's he's apologized somewhat. Um, it just shows, you know, politicians just have to be mindful of the impl- implications of what they're saying and understanding their audience. Now, I'm reminded of another, it's not nearly as serious a matter, but it relates to abortion, that a uh, Hamilton area MPP, uh, Oosterman in uh, the Niagara West yeah. writing, um, just doesn't understand that whatever his views are on abortion, that this is not a topic that the uh, the provincial government wants to go anywhere near and that, indeed, when he makes comments as he has on that topic, it's frankly an embarrassment. 
Uh, anyway, with regard to uh, you know the, the topic more generally, because I gather you were interested in talking about immigration policy beyond just the specific uh, the specific issue. Sure, actually has um, our share has has actually uh, taken a reasonably measured moderate position on uh, on um, immigration and has not uh, really distanced himself in any sense trying to appeal to the alt right um, as some might think. Again, perhaps because of some of the antics of our provincial premier in Ontario, that there's the sense that if conservatives have an opportunity, they'll just go right off the edge. And that does not seem to be the case this year, certainly not on this particular topic. Because the um, the Prime Minister, in fact, is sort of geared back with regard to immigration uh, a little bit. I mean, he certainly made a, made a, you know, a, a very positive gesture with regard to open doors for a while. But at the moment, there's no reason to think that the uh, conservative position is, is to the right of the uh, the federal liberal position on this matter. Yeah, and, and there's some similarities. You're absolutely right about that. And uh, but and I think one of the reasons that Scheer made that speech and, and actually seemed to be as definitive as he was in this, Barry, was because uh, ever since he assumed the leadership of the, of the Conservative Party, there has always been this concern and speculation about who he is, what he stands for, and actually who supports him. Uh, because as you mentioned at the convention, of course, uh, where he was actually elected leader over Maxime Bernier, uh, there was some concern that the alt-right element of that party were the ones that violently rallied behind Scheer uh, that got him over the top. And I guess the obvious concern there is, well, how much influence are they going to have over him then? Yeah, and the fact is that, uh, you know, the populist right, um, it, you know, is sort of on the ascendance in many countries, most countries probably, Western countries around the world on this particular topic. Canada is unique, though, in that I can't think of another developed Western country that doesn't have a border with a poorer country than itself. Um, I, Australia, of course, is an island, and not New Zealand the same, but in fact they have um, refugee claimants coming by boat. Particularly Australia has them coming down from, um, uh, from Indonesia and from other parts of Asia. So they've got an issue, too, even though they don't really have a, a land border with another country. In Canada, our, we have a border with a big country wealthier than us, and that there, aren't, oh, there are some, but there aren't a lot of people coming from the, uh, breaking down the doors to get into Canada. There have been a few, particularly because of fear of, of uh, Trump's policy. The, the point of all of this is that we in Canada do not suffer from the same kind of challenges of uh, un- unlimited uh, refugee claimants that most other countries, the U.S. for sure has, but that most countries in Europe have as well. And as a result, we can be a little bit more measured and not act uh, you know, out of out of panic, uh, in terms of trying to appeal to uh, to extremes, and I'd, I'd like to think that that certainly is the the sensible position that Shear has shown, and that in the past um, Trudeau has shown as well. You know, the real debate now these days on immigration policy, because it's something the people in Canada that are probably most likely to vote on the issue, are not long-term Canadian residents, but rather more recent immigrants from other countries themselves. And the debate here seems to be whether or not we are going to give priority to immigra- economic immigrants, people particularly who are, have, have characteristics and traits and education and so forth, and an age that makes them fit into our economy more, um, more efficiently, or whether we're going to have a larger proportion of people coming in through family unification. And that's kind of been the debate in the U.S. In the U.S., they have policies in place much more geared to family unification over people that will fit economically. In Canada, it's not totally that way, but in Canada, we've sort of edged in the other direction. And um, I think it's perhaps made it a less controversial issue. I'm sure there will be people 
in October election who will be concerned about this issue. But at the moment, I don't think it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's an overwhelming issue that's going to dominate the political landscape. Well, not at all, nor should it. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there have been some, some concerns recently, but I, I think part of that is caused, Barry, by the fact that some critics, and either intentionally or unintentionally, seem to conflate refugees and immigration, and they're, they're two very different things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, um, uh, well, again, the, the, the refugee issue is, is a real problem, and it's only going to get worse, particularly because of global warming, because of the fact that so many countries in the, the hot belt, the tropics, um, are finding it's, it's more and more difficult to be able to eke out a living agriculturally, which is what their economies is based on, and they're moving. But it happens that Canada is more remote. We do not have land borders, as I suggested, with anyone, and frankly, we've got a big bodies of water separating us from most other, you know, on the, the West Coast and on the East Coast. P- people aren't going to get in, in little rick- rickety boats to, to, to sail to Canada. So uh, the point of all this is just to suggest that we can be a little more measured and less panicky about the way we treat the issue and not sort of allow ourselves to be influenced by political extremists who are suggesting that the, the nature of the country is changing dramatically. The fact is, immigration is, is, is very significant in Canada. I think it's about 20, almost a quarter, 22 percent or so of our population are people that were not born in Canada. And in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver, it's close to half. Um, but these are people that, uh, one of the other things that makes immigration in Canada a little bit different is that unlike the U.S. for sure or much of Europe, they are not the, there's a mix of the kind of people that are coming in. First of all, they're better educated and younger. Uh, many of them speak English already. But they do not just come from one particular place as with the Hispanics in the United States. Uh, we've, we've got them coming in from East Asia, from South Asia, and from uh, Latin America and other places. And it, it means that indeed there is not the sense of a, uh, a homogeneous concern of one particular segment of the population challenging what many people feel is sort of the established order. So, and my, my point in all this is we have less reason to fear immigration in Canada and to be troubled by immigrants coming in, and frankly, to rather to, to, to take advantage of the fact that it's, it's great for our economy, particularly as our birth rate is declining. And those are factors that should make this issue less of a concern in Canadian elections than what we're seeing in the States, certainly with Trump, but we're seeing in a lot of Europe as well. Do we spend too much time and, and, and worry about wor- wondering of the personal views of some of our elected officials? Which, and I'm not being naive here. I mean, understandably, they can have some influence on policy. But we've seen a number of examples as well, Barry, where they may hold political views on, on certain key issues, like abortion, for instance, uh, or immigration. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily be reflected in their policy. And, and, uh, and I think that's maybe the bogeyman that a lot of folks are looking at with Sheer and saying, well, you know what he is like, so that's the kind of policy he's going to enact if he ever becomes prime minister, uh, which is the same accusation they made against Stephen Harper. And to a large extent, that didn't happen. No, uh, and Harper, uh, Harper particularly, not so much. Immigration wasn't such a big issue at that time. But Harper, I suspect, on the because uh, he is a, um, a, a religious, uh, I think, evangelical, um, and his church has certainly got a position on abortion, but he understood that that was not an issue that he wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole. Uh, and again, um, abortion is an issue that we've kind of laid to rest. It's certainly very divisive within the country, but we basically don't have a policy. We don't have a law on abortion. Abortions aren't available in some places like they are in others, and that's perhaps unfair to the populations of Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island, where I think it's very limited in certain agricultural areas. But um, the national politicians, unlike some of these backbench MPs, the national uh, political leaders hopefully will continue to understand that divisive issues like that should uh, should not be allowed to c- come and dominate, because that could be an issue that could get Canadians very much exercised against each other. 
And frankly, under other circumstances, immigration probably could too, because it's certainly happening elsewhere. But as I you know, mentioned a, few, a couple of minutes ago, there's unique reasons um, geographically as to why our, the remoteness of the country and the fact that we don't have a, a, a near border with a poorer country, because clearly people from poorer countries want to have economic opportunities, but that doesn't necessarily make them political refugees. If they're going to be admitted to Canada, they've got to have skills and language and health and age and other, the other factors that go into this. They're going to make them a, um, a real contribution to the country. We can be picky in terms of the kind of people that are coming, and that's why I think immigration is basically a, a, a very positive element in terms of the continued growth of Canada. But not all countries are able to deal with it that way. Back to, uh, to Cooper's comments, uh, Michael Cooper's comments, the MP who uh, was pulled up on the carpet for this. Uh, as we mentioned, Andrew Shear's response to this was to, to relieve him of the position on that committee, but he is still a critic. He's a deputy critic for justice, and he's still in caucus. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up, Barry, is because the timing on this is, uh, is well, interesting, to say the least, because it was only about two to three days before that that Shear made that speech about immigration and made the bold statement, uh, I guess to clarify the record, that the Conservative Party had no room for racists and bigots. Well, uh, what some people are responding to uh, with uh, Mr. Surrey's comments uh, about uh, the alt-right and, 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 and terrorism that was going on, uh, and then Cooper's reaction to that, saying, well, that was a, a racist remark, a racist uh, reaction. Cooper's actions here were and reactions were racist, and, and if Scheer were true to his words, he could have and probably should have booted him right out of caucus. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he was chastened to a degree that will be a lesson both to him and I think other members of the Conservative caucus, this is particularly as we're sort of getting into the, uh, the election format. I, I, I really can't comment. I don't know enough about the, uh, the, the, the person he was criticizing to know whether his comments have been intemperate in other matters. It's, sometimes that happens. I don't want to say they are in this case or not. Uh, I just want to suggest that, indeed, I think uh, Scheer did enough to, uh, to, tr- to indicate that this isn't acceptable among his caucus. Um, if in fact, I would imagine that um, there may be some minority immigrant communities that are more skeptical about the conservatives. Actually, the conservatives have been fairly generous, fairly open with regard to immigration, certainly true in the Harper days, uh, with, uh, in, in terms of numbers coming to the country that haven't been all that different, uh, different from the liberals. There are some differences in policy. Um, and as I say, that sort of touches on the family reunification versus the, uh, the people that are more skilled in terms of uh, contributing and being integrated into the economy. There, that is sort of basically the debate, not so much the numbers. We have, if not exactly 1%, but it's close to 1% replacement uh, in terms of immigrants in general. Now, the re- refugee category is something else. The refugee category is, in fact, dependent um, upon circumstances around the world and when there have been circumstances most recently in Syria. But certainly in the past with Ugandan Asians and with Hungarians and Czechs um, and uh, the boat people coming from Vietnam, where in fact we have taken significant numbers in the range of 50, 60, 70,000 uh, that have come in. Uh, the, uh, the refugee category is something else and depends really on circumstances around the world. But in general, this, gen- this topic has not been one that has divided Canadians, and I certainly hope we don't allow it to, to do so. I think Sheer handled this well. I think Trudeau's positions have not been all that different. Uh, in fact, they've been generous at times. He's not admitting a whole lot more people at the moment. But the need perhaps isn't quite as great in terms of because um, people are not coming out of the Middle East in the way they were in the, the wake of the, um, the, the Syrian civil war. I'm sure there's lots of people around the world that would love to have the opportunity to come to Canada, and a number of them will have that opportunity. But it's a matter of what the criteria are going to be, and those are criteria 
that should be based on connect what on what's in the interest of Canada. Who are the people that are going to be able to make the the most effective economic contribution of the country and going to be able to be integrated into our country as effectively as possible? I, I would think also that Cooper's comments or his reaction actually to Siri's comments at the uh, the committee hearing uh, would just probably another example of again another elected official who's looking for that ten second soundbite that's going to make the evening news. Uh, he got it for for all the wrong reasons, but we we seem to have a propensity right now, Barry of 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 MPs. MPPs, councillors for that matter too, that uh, that shoot first and aim later, and and that, that's what gets them into hot water a lot of the time. Well, in this case, it sure did, and look, look, sure handled it, I think, appropriately. Could more have been done? Maybe I guess Siri. Again, I don't know that much about him, so I, I don't really want to comment on on wh- whether he did something to actually trigger uh, uh, Cooper or not. But um, I, I'm I'm personally not particularly critical in any sense of the way that. Um, the uh, the Conservative Party leaders handled this particular matter. In this particular case, though, it goes down to the behavior of the elected official, and uh, I'm hoping that if there's a, a life lesson to be learned from this uh, with other MPs, too, it's it's to be a little more measured in their response, uh, not just to committee hearings, but, I mean, in general with some of the comments they make. Clearly, think through the implications. How, how is this going to be heard? And he may have just had a, had a short fuse and allowed something to uh, cause him to act intemperately. If so, he's been slapped down somewhat. It's... Some might argue that more should have been done. I'm not sure that, uh, that that's necessary in this case. But this uh, does raise the issue of the immigration issue once again, which Sheer had done previously uh, just a couple of days before, as we mentioned, with the speech that you've already alluded to. Uh, does that put that issue on the front burner when we do go to the polls in October? We'll see. Uh, you know, remember, it was the last election in 15. It was uh, the immigration policy was triggered by the photo of that little boy who had yeah. family in Canada who had died on the shores of... Uh, trying to remember whether it was Turkey or it was certainly on the edge of the Mediterranean. And that provided an emotional charge. Could that kind of thing happen again between now and October? Possibly. Um, uh, but indeed, there are, in, in politics, there's all sorts of wild cards and circumstances that just emerge. It certainly happened in 2015 to trigger the rise of that issue. Uh, Trudeau handled it in a way that was certainly politically successful for him, at least in the short run. In the, in the interim, there have been people who have thought that perhaps his response was too generous. But of late, in fact, not all that many new immigrants are coming in on those grounds. Uh, That's not to say we don't have um, immigrants coming in. They're coming in all the time. But the refugees coming from Syria are no longer coming in the kind of numbers that they were before. But uh, could this, could, uh, so at the moment, I don't think this is an issue that either the conservatives or liberals want to sort of put front and center. Then they don't, don't have a lot of, of, uh, of, of leeway between them anyway. There's certainly not a, a lot of distance between the liberal and conservative positions at the moment. Should something emerge in terms of, uh, you know, some tragedy internationally between now and October, anything's possible. It certainly happened four years ago. Uh, and obviously part of the reason that we can, seem to be talking about this to the extent that we do is, uh, well, opposition parties doing what opposition parties do is to say, well, the system's broken broken. Uh, I don't think it is. As a matter of fact, if you've uh, seen the discussion that's going on south of the border right now about their immigration concerns, uh, many of them are pointing to the Canadian system and say that's what we should be doing here. That it, so it seems to be one of these systems that's put in place, and it's, it's a work in progress, obviously, that has gained the respect of other countries. Yeah, the reason I mentioned uh, what I did before is that we are geographically in a unique position that the idea of unlimited inflows of refugee claimants it does not apply in Canada as it does in so many other countries around the world. But that's part of the reason why we can handle it a little bit more rationally and without uh, emotionalism. Are there people out there who think too many refugees are coming in? Probably. Um, at the moment, however, not, the political parties do not seem to be poised to make a, um, an issue of it and do not want to divide Canada. If something emerged between now, if there had been some sort of another attack uh, by, by people that had, had refugee backgrounds, anything's possible. 
but hopefully that won't happen, and at the moment I don't see it. Barry, thanks as always for the time today. Great talking with you again. Bye-bye now. That's uh, Barry Kay, professor of uh, political science, of course, at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.